Magnum for Schneider was not, as the title suggests, about drinking copious amounts of champagne, but rather an episode of the ITV anthology series Armchair Theatre, originally airing on the 4th of February 1967. In it, Edward Woodward played David Callan, a down-at-heel and world-weary secret agent whose job was the elimination of undesirables, and his tasks varied based upon the colour coding his department gave to certain persons of interest. These files were, in order of importance, red, dangerous targets of most urgent priority, marked for death, yellow, a subject under occasional surveillance, blue, members of the wrong party, and white, people to be put out of action by sending them into divorce courts, bankruptcy, prison, or mental homes. Shot in black and white and on videotape, a magnum for Schneider is quite rough nowadays, but Woodward's performance as the unglamorous hitman who operates in a seedy and shadowy world is a far cry from the globe-trotting antics of James Bond, and he immediately struck a chord with viewers. Created by Tyneside writer James Mitchell, Callan was the deliberate antithesis not only to Bond, but to the escapism and jet-setting of 60s adventure series such as The Avengers, and this episode of Armchair Theatre was a smash hit with viewers. A series of six episodes was commissioned immediately and scheduled for airing in July-August of 1967. The series had a minimalist and disturbing opening credit sequence with a piece of music called Girl in the Dark, written by Dutch composer Jan Stockhart. The images that accompanied the music were of a swinging light bulb that exploded when shot before a final startling image of Edward Woodward framed by broken glass with a bullet hole in his forehead. Here is the opening credit theme. from the excitement of the themes of The Saint or The Avengers, I think you'll agree. Callan's first season set up the show with recurring characters and plot lines, the most successful being Callan's informant and stooge Lonely, played by Russell Hunter. Lonely, who had no idea who Callan worked for and actually thought him to be a London gangster, was so named due to his tendency to sweat profusely when nervous, which gave him a curious body odour. 
Callan's boss was named Hunter, but like the various number twos in The Prisoner, Hunter changed actor in every season. It was never implied that it was the same Hunter, unlike M in the Bond films, and Callan had the original actor to play Hunter, Ronald Rat, appearing in later episodes, his character having been promoted. The second series in 1969 was aired under the umbrella title The Callan Saga and ended on a cliffhanger. After filming an ending where Callan met his demise at the hands of the enemy, Thames Television, who produced the series, decided to shoot a more ambiguous finale should the series return for a third run. This ended up being a wise decision, as switchboards at their office lit up following the screening of the last episode, Death of a Hunter, with concerned viewers eager to know if Callan had survived. He did, of course, and the third series, now shot in colour, began airing in 1970. This run concluded in 1971, and after a break of over a year, Callan returned in 1972 for a final run of 13 episodes that culminated in a three-part story, The Richmond Files, in which Callan, having disobeyed a direct order from Hunter in having killed a double agent, walks away from the section knowing his time to be over. It was a satisfactory end to the series, but you can't keep a good man down, and Callan would return two more times. The first was a 1974 theatrical movie entitled A Red File for Callan or Callan the Movie, depending on the print. See, following the success of the series, Mitchell penned a series of stories for the Sunday Express, as well as a number of Callan novels, the first of which, also titled A Red File for Callan, was first published in 1969 and was an expanded and revised retelling of the original armchair theatre script. The movie was the first time I came across Callan, as it was a regular staple on late-night ITV in the early 1980s. Feeling far more like Get Carter than Bond, the differences between the two characters are introduced straight away. Callan works in a nondescript office in a boring building in a grimy part of London. After being berated by his boss for going to lunch on time, Callan catches a bus for a meeting with his old boss, the new Hunter, and the plot is set up. Hello, Hunter. Looking well. You're sleeping better. Every night. Still drinking. I'll go down to the boozer every now and then. I don't keep the stuff at home anymore, but I can't afford it, can I? Ah, yeah, that's your job. It's boring, I gather. You ought to know you picked it for me. Well, there really isn't very much demand for chaps like you once you leave me. But what can you do, after all? Use a gun. Use your fists. Open locks. Legally, you're unskilled, Callan. And do better robbing banks. A joke. I'm a good boy now. You're a killer. Are you still good with a gun? Well, I haven't had much chance to find out lately. You've always been a problem to us, Callan. What is my section for? Getting rid of people. Exactly. Getting rid of people. Bribery, blackmail, frame-ups, death. Occasionally, when there was no other way. In the past six years, I've had 15 people killed. You did five of them. They had to die, and you know it. Otherwise, they would have killed a great many innocent people. That's what security is for, to protect the innocent. Yeah. 
I had to get rid of you before, when you began to worry about the ones you killed. You think I've changed? Maybe. If you have, I want you back. But I have to be sure. And we're stuck, aren't we? Not necessarily. There's a job I want done. It's urgent. You'd have to do it yourself. No help from the section. Not even a gun. I suppose you have your reasons. I have to know you've changed. I have to be sure. I'm offering you a chance to prove it. But... By killing somebody. What other proof is there? A red one, of course. You remember the filing system, then? Oh, yeah, I remember it. If a bloke needs watching, he gets a yellow file. If he's dangerous, really dangerous, he gets a red one, and sometimes he gets killed as well. What's this one done? Never mind. He's got a red file. A Schneider. You know him, then? Of course I know him. Yeah, he's got the office next door to ours. Now, isn't that a coincidence? What's he done? That's the second time you've asked that question. It's none of your concern, Callum. He's in a red file. That's reason all enough. All right. His death must not look like an accident. I want him shot at his house. Callan quickly learns that his posting is a setup. The man Hunter wants killed works in the office next to Callan. The opening of the film sets up the characters and their situation economically and with great skill. Callan is bored in his new job. He works for an officious little man with a little power and a big chip on his shoulder. He longs to return to the excitement of his old gig, despite the problems that it caused him. Woodward's portrayal is that of a man not in any way happy with his life, nor how it's turned out. Callan accepts the assignment. Despite all his protestations, he clearly wants back in, but is spied upon by Hunter and his number one, Mears, here played by Eric Porter and Peter Egan, respectively. This pretty much sets up the cynical world Callan lives in, where nobody can be trusted and everyone is a potential threat. As part of his ploy, Callan accidentally bumps into his intended target, Schneider, played by Carl Mona, and they immediately get on after Callan recognises all the clay soldiers Schneider is carrying. It seemed a remarkable stroke of luck that Callan would know all of these infantries and armies, but then I realised that my granddad would be able to name them all as well, so I let it go. Callan immediately spots that he's being followed, ditches them, and hits up Lonely for a gun, having been denied one by Hunter. The scene with Lonely shows that Callan is actually a bit of a bastard, treating the poor man like trash and pointing out his B.O. every chance he gets. Lonely goes about his task, meeting up with the rather effeminate the Greek to request Callan's weapon, a magnum, and there he encounters the Greek's heavily mustachioed and overly muscled bodyguard, played by Dave Prowse. Callan, meanwhile, digs up everything he can about Schneider. Hunter doesn't want him digging up anything. After all, it's not Callan's job to ask questions. Hunter is so concerned that Callan will botch the job, he orders Mayers to carry out the hit if Callan fails and frame Callan for it. Prowse isn't the only Star Wars vet to show up. Don Henderson, who plays Taggy, has one line later in the film. Characterisation is sound throughout the picture. Callan fights depression and alcoholism, knowing he's damned whichever way he turns, and the fact that his only friend is lonely is an irony not lost on him. 
He's a methodical man, though. A lot of the movie's running time is devoted to Callan prepping for the job by brushing up his shooting skills, toughening his fists, and casing Shider's office and home. Scheider is also well-defined. His wife, Jenny, played by Space 1999's Catherine Schell, pleads with Scheider to stop what he's doing, and Mona does a really good job with the role, imbuing Schneider with a likability and charm. Callan is therefore surprised that Schneider is an arms dealer to some of the world's top terrorists, so charming is the man in Callan's dealings with him. Callan's other relationships are also well-defined. Mayers is the up-and-comer who wants Callan's job, and Hunter, the untrustworthy boss, and both roles are handled admirably by the actors. Callan and Mayers come to blows at one point, which is a notable scene for having Peter Egan blowing his lines, telegraphing not hurting Callan's face, before Callan says they will be meeting Hunter soon, and so probably best not to meet him with bruised eyes and, and chipped teeth. Don't be such a bloody fool! Don't worry. Until I see Hunter in a minute! Don't worry, I won't mark your face. <coughs> Action is surprisingly infrequent, and when it does happen, brutal. One such scene is when the Greek and Darth Pornstash attack Callan, wanting to find out why he wanted the Magnum. After a beating, Callan turns the tables and, in keeping with his character, takes Pornstash down with two hard punches, one to his chest and one to his throat. Director Don Sharp slows the film down here and bleeds the colour out, emphasising the bone-cracking sound effects as Callan smashes Darth Pornstash's face onto the table, killing him. The Greek understandably shits himself. This doesn't stop him offering Callan ten grand a year, about 109,000 in today's money, to work for him. Callan hits him over the head and then pukes his guts out. Interestingly, Callan's salary at the office is £20.47 a week, working out about £200 a week today. Another titbit, probably only of interest to me, is Callan gives the date of the hit as Sunday the 22nd of October, but the 22nd of October in 1973 was a Monday. Sunday was the 22nd of October in 1967, when this originally aired as Armchair Theatre. Somebody somewhere didn't update their script. Callan takes his meeting with the Greek and Darth Pornstash out on Lonely, and he punches him quite a few times just to ensure this doesn't happen again. In a revealing moment, Callan later apologises to Lonely, telling him if he hadn't done it, somebody else would have. This is after Callan has seen the Greek being lobotomised by the section, so he clearly did Lonely a favour. As the plot unfolds, Callan is unaware that the fake boss has been telling Schneider that Callan is a former criminal and he's only been employed as a favour. He tells Schneider that Callan has been watching him and he suspects that Callan's casing the joint. As such, Schneider starts to back out of the war game session he and Callan have arranged for Sunday by telling Callan that he has a deal to go to and may not be in the country. Callan has already told Hunter that he plans to kill Schneider this Sunday when they plan to meet up for the session, so Callan goes about preventing Schneider's deal from happening, putting the frighteners on him in a cat-and-mouse car chase. Schneider, however, is puzzled that the car chasing them had darkened glass, which meant that the driver was A, somebody who knew him, and two, didn't want him dead. Schneider starts to suspect something is up. And I do like films where the bad guy is as smart as the good guy. The stage is then set for the climax, where Hunter and Mayers are setting Callan up for Schneider's death. Callan and Schneider elect to fight the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg, with Schneider playing General Lee and Callan playing General Meade. Schneider, despite his military training, is beaten twice by Callan, but the plan goes tits up when Mayers buggers everything up by knocking out Jenny and Schneider's chauffeur, putting Schneider on the defensive. Schneider captures Mayers, but Callan manages to distract Schneider and puts a bullet in his head. 
He then knocks Mayers out and sets him up for the murder, leaving Hunter in a shit stew of his own making. In return, Hunter upgrades Callan's personnel file from yellow to red. A red file for Callan is a taut, gritty and thrilling picture with great performances and a tight script. It's a well-realised take on the double-dealing life that spies live in, and the fact that Callan finds he can trust no one is central to the film's appeal. As the movie is a remake of the first adventure, it's probably the best place to start, should you be interested in giving Callan a watch, and it's easy to find on DVD for cheap. The full film is also available on YouTube. Woodward gives his customary impressive best, imbuing Callan with a deep loathing for his job and himself for doing it. Whilst the film is easily available, the series sadly isn't so fortunate. Callan was one of the unfortunate victims of the short-sighted wiping of TV shows in the late 60s, and as such, of the six episodes made for the first series, only the first and final episodes still exist. The second series first somewhat better, with nine of the 15 shows having been saved. However, one of those shows, The Worst Soldier I Ever Saw, only exists as an unedited studio recording and had to be reconstructed for the DVD release. These are available as Callan The Monochrome Years on DVD. Callan The Colour Years collects all of the episodes from series 3 and 4, which have survived in their entirety. Unlike many contemporary shows of the era, like The Avengers or The Sweeney, Callan doesn't receive a lot of reruns, although Mitchell would revisit the character in novels. David Callan seems rather forgotten today, which is unfortunate, but also apt. Woodward gives a magnetic central performance, and the dark scripts and subject matter mean it holds up well, despite being a tad slow by today's standards. As mentioned, Callan and Lonely would return for Wet Job, a 1981 TV movie, again written by Mitchell, with Woodward and Hunter reprising their roles. Whilst not as critically acclaimed as the series, it was a nice farewell to the characters and is also available on DVD. Woodward would go on to further recognition and acclaim, appearing on stage, in film and on TV regularly, adding gravitas and class to anything he appeared in. As a noted tenor, he also recorded a number of albums. Arguably, though, his greatest international success came when he was cast as Robert McCall in The Equaliser, a universal production for CBS television. McCall has many similarities to Callan, with both men wondering at one point if the only thing they were ever good at was killing. And even though the backstories are very different, I suspect they would have got on famously. McCall was more refined than Callan, but he could afford to be. Whatever it was that McCall did in the past, he was evidently well compensated for it, something Callan wasn't. The Equaliser was created by Richard Lindheim and Michael Sloan. There are different stories told about its creation, with former Bond George Lazenby claiming the series was created for him, but Hollywood politics got in the way. Sloan claimed the show was written for Woodward, after Woodward did them a favour by appearing in an early project for no fee, a generosity they remembered when devising the series. Whatever the truth, it's hard to imagine Lazenby bringing the same amount of seething, repressed rage to the role as Woodward did. Woodward's McCall was a man who wore expensive suits, drank fine wine, drove classy cars and listened to classical music, but underneath was a ball of burly concealed anger, something Woodward excelled at. Derogatorily called Call Daddy by the network, the pilot to The Equaliser is unusual for the era in that it is only 48 minutes instead of the customary 90-minute telefilm. I suspect there is a longer cut of this somewhere, as it feels a tad choppy in places, and there are a number of continuity cock-ups. 
Written by Sloan and directed by US TV mainstay Rod Holcomb, the pilot opens with Robert McCall fed up with working with incompetence and chances and quitting whatever secret organisation it was he worked for. The series never made it quite clear who McCall answered to. He was clearly British, but he had a lot of connections within the upper echelons of US law enforcement and the CIA. His primary boss was referred to only as Control, played by Robert Lansing, but the series built up a steady cast of recurring characters as it went along. Most notably, here's McCall's son, Scott, with whom McCall has a fractious relationship. Well, hello there. It's been a long time. Yes, yes it has. Been far too long, Scott. You still remember my name. Good start. Oh, Yes, I suppose I do deserve that. No, you don't. It's just a long time since you've been to a concert. Yes, yes. Yes, well, I, I mean, now, you see, I have, um, I have time to do more of the things I really want to do. That's nice. Scott, I've resigned. I didn't think you could do that. I changed the rules. Good for you. When was the last time you were in town? Christmas, New Year's? It doesn't matter. I remember, you just got back from one of those ravaged countries. A takeover. I watched it on the news. Fifteen Americans killed, but someone got a bunch of college kids to the airport. A commandeered, battered old school bus. I always wondered if that was you. Was it? Could have been. How come your father abandoned you, Scott? I popped the last guy that said that. Like father, like son. All right. Now perhaps we can both learn to control some emotions. Isn't it too late for that? Not for me. Then I guess it can't be too late for me. Things are changing, Scott. It's a new slate. Beginning to feel good. So what are you going to do with this new slate? I'm going to stand back, look around me, get to know my son a little better. You better talk to your ex-wife about that. She's pretty independent now. Good job. New photos on the mantelpiece. Charge card at Bloomies, it's all paid up. <laughs> she feels pretty good about herself. You can't spoil that. No, 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 I wouldn't want to do that. Perhaps I can enhance it. Not unless you've changed an awful lot. That is exactly why I need the chance to prove that to both of you. <sighs> well, you know where to find me. Look, I've got about four hours of practice left before the old man breaks my violin bow over his knee. <laughs> well, if you're going to be in town a while, we put this thing together in a couple of nights. Yes, yes. Oh, I'll be there. That's a promise. I'll be looking for you. It's great to see you, Dad. It really is. Likewise. I always hoped it was you driving that bus. But I won't hold my breath at the concert. McCall is interesting to compare to Callan. A number of actors have portrayed similar characters across different shows. There's barely a sliver of light, for example, between the A-Team's face and Battlestar Galactica's Starbuck, but Woodward plays with a subtler palette. Callan never had a family, but McCall clearly knows what he's given up for his job and seems keen to make amends. 
His son is open to it and actually seems proud of McCall's accomplishments, despite it not making up for having an absent father. McCall's ex-wife would not, however, be pleased to see him, he's told, and McCall respects those boundaries. Very quickly, though, McCall has placed an ad in the paper offering his services for hire, and in a lot of respects, McCall shows more in common with the gunfighter than Callan does with Bond. The main difference here is one of approach. Spies have been a source of fascination on British TV for years, the seedier the better, but US TV is always more interested in the cowboy and the idea of justice rather than strict adherence to the law. Rather quickly, we're introduced to Colleen Randall, who has been harassed by a sketchy man, and Brad Hamilton, who seems to have run afoul of nefarious government types, as well as Control, who refers to McCall as the most dangerous man he's ever known. I removed the bug you planted from the telephone in my bedroom, from the fireplace in my living room, and the lamp in my guest room. Don't waste any more government money. McCall, you've got to come in. Look, I've been keeping the walls off of you. They're starting to call for your blood. I am an old war horse let out to pasture. You are the most dangerous man I have ever known. Now, you keep that thought. You got too much information in your head. Places, names, dates, entire networks. You know, the other side would have a field day pulling that stuff out of you. They could try. A call. A call. Wait a minute. Look, I know. I know why you resigned. I didn't have to read the letter, all right? What's in your heart is fine. I can't let you do it. Sure, it's a tough world out there. All kinds of people need help all the time. But we've got our own world, our own little shadow world. And you can't just walk away from it. Just watch me. A call, come back. I cannot do that. You're too great a security risk for them to tolerate, you understand? This is more than adequately demonstrated when McCall is escorting Hamilton and his wife out of New York when they are targeted by hitmen. working out. McCall's investigations lead him to discover that the VP of the telecom company Hamilton worked for is recording high-level officials' phone conversations to use for blackmail. McCall tracks down the senator who is being blackmailed and sets about sorting out Hamilton's problem. Whilst working on this, he's also dealing with Colleen, pulling in favours from numerous colleagues, which will be a staple of the series. McCall's handling of Colleen's problem isn't very subtle. He basically sticks a gun in the guy's face, but it seems to do the job. Here, you can have everything. Colleen Randall, you've had your fun at the lady's expense. Now, you will not see her. You will not talk to her. You will not go to her daughter's school. You will not see or talk or be anywhere near her ever again. Because if I hear that you have even been walking down the same street that she is on, I will kill you. Now, do you understand that? Do you understand that? Leave the lady alone. Alone! I swear! I swear! I swear! That Woodward, who seems so avuncular, could be so genuinely terrifying is a testament to his ability as an actor. 
Throughout the episode, mention is made of how scared people are of McCall, and when Woodward really loses it, the audience believe it. Woodward showed you you could be advancing in years and maybe carrying a few extra pounds, but still be a badass. Control manages to get McCall's risk rating down to a yellow, a nod to Callan perhaps, in exchange for a quid pro quo arrangement with McCall, which McCall takes advantage of when offering up the Senator's problem. Meanwhile, Colleen's unwanted stalker, who rather foolishly wasn't scared off by McCall, returns. In a replay of the cold open, Colleen's stalker holds a knife to her throat and McCall shoots him. The Equaliser is a fast-paced and enjoyable pilot that doesn't skimp on action or character. It doesn't quite have the depth of Callan. Colleen Stalker, for example, is given no motivation whatsoever for what he's doing. But the cast, particularly Woodward Lansing and Stephen Williams as McCall's police contact, do great work with what they are given. Likewise, McCall's reason for quitting is very quick, and his setting himself up as the Equaliser, an old nickname apparently, is one very short scene. There are two other things worthy of mention in The Equaliser, the score by Stuart Copeland and the location filming in New York. As with Magnum P.I., this show being set somewhere other than L.A. gave it a grit unlike many of the other action shows of the time. With Woodward in the lead, as far removed from the bland, good-looking mannequins normally hired for this kind of series, and the grimy urban setting, The Equaliser didn't look like anything else on television, and that gave it an edge. It also didn't sound like anything else on television, thanks to Copeland's score. Why this has never received a proper commercial release is beyond me. The Equaliser ran for four seasons and was only cancelled in a pissing contest between Universal Studios and the CBS network. Apparently, to secure Angela Lansbury's services for further seasons of Murder, she wrote, Lansbury's agent asked for an inordinate amount of money. Because that show was a particular hit for CBS at the time, Lansbury got her wish. But, in retaliation, the head of the CBS network at the time cancelled every other show Universal had on the network, including The Equaliser, which was still performing admirably in the ratings. All four seasons of the show are available on DVD and are well worth your time. Colleen, I misread Steve. I thought I'd scare him away, instead of which I pushed him right over the edge. That's why he came back. I owe you an apology. Oh, you don't owe me anything. I owe you... How do you thank the man who saved your life? Well, you just did. No. Um... I withdrew my savings. It's it's a thousand dollars. I know your fee must be... My good. fee is one hundred dollars. To your favorite charity. Last night was the first time I was able to sleep in about a month. I was wondering if you'd like to come over for dinner. I'm going to pass on that. I'd like to get to know you better. You wouldn't. I'll never see you again. If you have any problems, you have my number. Connie? Goodbye. Good luck. And good luck to the Equalizer. 
hope you enjoyed that look back at the career of Edward Woodward and his two most famous roles. I'll be back after this commercial break, which basically means I'll go and knock back some alcohol, and then we'll have a look at the emails. I regret to say, sir, Batman and Robin are not at present available. What? Oh, surely you, you must be jesting. Alas, sir, I am not. Gotham City is overcome by villainy on the comic page from the likes of the Joker, <laughs> the Riddler, and the Penguin. As they run rampant, only one man has the courage, the gall, and the skills to face the Silver Age. Hi, I'm J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. If you haven't guessed, this is an overly dramatic promo for my show, The Dave Cave, a Batman podcast looking at the tales of the dynamic duo from the Silver Age. Come back with me to a time when Batman was less grim, Robin was content to wear hot pants, and the villains didn't rip their own faces off. Each episode will examine a tale from the pages of comics such as Batman, Detective Comics, The Brave and the Bold, and World's Finest Comics. It's all the bat action, bat adventure, and bat puns that you can handle on The Dave Cave, available at thedavecavepodcast.com, iTunes, or the podcatcher of your choice. The Dave Cave Batman Podcast, because in the Silver Age, there were no limits. Holy unsatisfying ending. Okay, we've got quite a few emails to look at. I don't like not doing shows with emails, but the last two episodes, the Star Wars commentary was recorded over 18 months ago. And as such, obviously didn't have an email at the end of it and then the commentary with mike for for spider-man 2 um i always think those episodes go on for long enough and you don't really need an email section after them but our first email is from the mighty gene Hendricks, who says palish mishmash show palish mishmash show with money penny oh yes run along dear man talk uh andy gene i just listened to your laced it up <laughs> fucked up Gene's email before I even begin. I just listened to your latest episode and thought I'd drop you a line. I'm not going to comment on the Reb Brown Captain America as I think Chris Franklin and I dissected that movie and its sequel well enough on an episode of the Legends of the Superheroes, which can be found on the Hammer podcast feed on 2TrueFreaks.com. And I'll apologise though, Gene. If I remembered that you'd done that, I probably wouldn't have done it. But, to be fair, I don't even remember what I've covered anymore. So... I'm sure you can, you know, cut me some slack. Gene continues, I remember watching Knight Rider 2000 when it came out, since I was a huge fan of the TV show, and the thought of a sequel series was really enticing. Sadly, it didn't really live up to the hype. It left such a bad taste in my mouth that I didn't watch any of the other iterations. Land of the Giants is a show that I remember seeing ads for when watching reruns of Lost in Space, but I never felt any need to watch it. I don't think that a show like that could grow beyond the gimmick. It sounds like even the pilot couldn't grow beyond the gimmick, so I'm glad I skipped it. As for class, I didn't even know this existed. Of course, since I've been out of the Doctor Who game for a while, no BBC America, this doesn't surprise me. Sounds like I didn't miss much. Thanks for watching these so we don't have to, Gene. Well, thank you, Gene. And going to what I just said, I'd completely forgotten that I covered Land of the Giants. <laughs> oh, dear me, I'm absolutely shocking. Gene hosts a number of shows here on tutorfreaks.com including The Hammer Strikes, The Quantum Cast, and Anime Freaks. Go and check all of those out. Uh, he also has a Patreon page, so you can uh, you can drop some money in his tip jar, because that would be lovely if you were to do that. Palace feedback, or even I can't defend that first cap telefilm, is from Michael Bailey. It's always lovely to hear from Mike. Andy! Mike! 
So I'm at work, and because I'm pretty much my own island these days, I can sit here and listen to your shows whilst I work on people's copy jobs. It's one of the few things that gets me through the day sometimes. Anyway, I listened to you talk about the first Captain America pilot from 1979, and there is a part of me that wanted to sit down and write a glorious defence of the film. The thing is, I can't. That thing is terrible. I bought it on VHS back in the summer of 1995 and was so freaking excited to have finally found it, as it was one of those superhero movies that escaped me as a kid. I was three in 1979, so I don't remember much of the television I watched, and when this pilot, or the second one, would randomly pop up in syndication, I would always discover that it was on five minutes before it ended. So in the previously mentioned 1995, I found both Captain America and Captain America 2 Death Too Soon at Suncoast Video, and eagerly bought them with money I should have been spending on responsible things. <laughs> yeah, I do that all the time as well, even now. <laughs> I still haven't got the hand of being an adult. Then, continues Michael, I watched them. I can honestly say the second one is better than the first one, but that's not a triumph by any stretch of the imagination. Whilst I liked the action scenes a little better than you did, your assessment of the film was spot on. I'm glad I'm not the only one that got a gay porn vibe off that first scene between Steve and his friend. Brown is burly adequate and the rest of the cast is just casting a check. The only two scenes I can say I like is the shot of the motorcycle shooting out of the van for the first time and a two-second blink-and-you'll-miss-it shot towards the end of the motorcycle launching into the air with the helicopter right behind. Other than that, it was, as you said, a boring action piece followed by bad acting and a plot that made little to no sense. The only truly good thing about the movie is the theme by Post and, I believe, Carpenter. It is used to much better effect in the sequel, but the only thing that made the scene of Steve riding through a few levels of Excitey Bike was the music. I did appreciate that you pointing out, as awful as this film is, it is a good example of how great we have it today. While the second pilot was marginally better, thanks mainly to Connie Seleka and Christopher Lee and a few actually good action sequences, the 1990 movie, released on video in 1992, was good only by comparison to this pile of crap, and we hit the jackpot with Captain America, The First Avenger and its sequels. In 1979, we were in a better position when it came to comic book properties thanks to the Superman film, the Wonder Woman television series, the Spider-Man series and the awesome Incredible Hulk. There were some problems with all of those shows and movies, including Superman. I know it's like using the Bible to wipe yourself in an outhouse to say anything bad about Superman, but the bad poetry reading in the middle of that film while Reeve and Kidder look at each other always brings the movie to a dead freaking stop. And I think the film has a little trouble getting back on track. I love it, but... Damn it, that scene is boring. Send all hate mail to views from the mailbox at gmail.com. <laughs> well, I'm not going to send you email, Michael, even though I don't agree with you. I, I think the best thing you can do with that scene is, on the DVD release, I think it's the 2006 one that came in the tin, you can switch between a music-only track and the audio track. And the best thing to do with that scene, the minute they take off, you just switch to the music-only track, and then you don't have to hear Margot Kidder's dreadful poetry recital. And it, it works really well with just the music. Because that's really quite a lovely piece of music from John Williams. Anyway, Michael continues. My point, which I have, I promise, is that we are so freaking lucky to have so many good comic book films and shows to choose from at the moment. I will close by mentioning that I remember watching Knight Rider 2000 when it came on back in 1991. I watched just about all of the reunion films between 1988 and 1992, and for the most part I liked them. I guess my favourable memories of the return of the $6 million man and the Bionic Woman had more to do with the fact that I never really watched the original series, but that's a discussion for another time. 
that is actually a discussion for another time. How about I look at all the reunion movies for the $6 million man? That may be fun, because I've got them all. Hmm. Hmm. You're tickling an ivory there, Michael. Uh, I may be tempted to do that one day. Anyway, Michael continues. Despite seeing Knight Rider 2000, the only thing I really remember was the fact that Kit was put into a 57 Chevy. And I want to watch it again because you spoke so highly of it. That's all for now. Keep up the awesome work. Sorry for the novel. Cheers, Mikey Mike B. P.S. I did buy the two Cap Telly films when they popped up on DVD for a tenner. <laughs> I know, I know, I have a problem. <laughs> well, the first part of sorry i've just knocked something on the floor the first part of acknowledging that you have a problem michael is acknowledging that you have a problem which i think you just did so maybe you're on your way to being cured then again maybe not i'll grab that bag is my next email from the mighty chris franklin hello andy hello christopher fun potpourri episode although i'm sorry you didn't find the captain america telefilm at all entertaining i remember this one fondly from my childhood so it's got a soft place in my heart or maybe it's just rotten. Either way, despite its horridness, I still like it in some ways. I do think the Mike Post theme is the best thing about it. The sequel is far better, thanks to the presence of Christopher Lee as the scowling villain Miguel and some decent stunt work. Gene Hendricks and I covered both movies on Gene's Hammer podcast right here on Two True Freaks. Strangely, my daughter Danny really likes these movies. Go figure. I remember something about the Knight Rider film, but I missed it, and all the attempted Knight Rider reboots over the years. Reunion films usually range from bad to god-awful, so it's good to hear this one had some merit. Aside from the excellent new Batman Return of the Cape Crusader animated film, I think the best TV reunion movie is probably the Andy Griffith Show reunion, Return to Maybury. I have never seen so much as a single episode of the Andy Griffith Show. Although I did notice all of them were on Netflix, which I thought was, was weird. But uh, there you go. And if you want to hear Chris and his wife, Cindy, talk about Batman Return of the Cape Crusader, the animated movie with Adam West and Burt Ward, check out the recent episode of Supermates that came out uh, around the end of January, middle to the end of January. It's really good. And they're both effusive in their praise of that telefilm, no, that telefilm, direct-to-DVD movie, which they should be because it really is very entertaining. Chris continues, I watched a bit of Land of the Giants on the Sci-Fi Channel back when they actually showed old science fiction shows. It now runs in the wee hours of Saturday morning on MeTV here in the States. None of the Owen Allen shows ever really clicked with me and this is another one of them. I'm interested in watching Class when it finally comes to BBC America. I'm up for sampling anything Doctor Who related, although I'd rather just have had a proper season of Who this year. Now to let go of your bag and sign off until next time. Chris and the aforementioned Supermate, which I just talked about, is available on the Fire and Water podcast network. Uh, the Grab Bag episode, uh, there's an email by Jason Trenner. The Grab Bag episode seems to go down quite well. I was quite nervous about doing that one because um, I, I never wonder what you as lovely listeners actually prefer. Do you prefer me to leave a longer gap between episodes and write a longer episode? Like I'm currently writing The Untold Tales of Spider-Man the first one that's coming along soon and that will cover the the three issues of amazing fantasy 16 17 and 18 and the first six issues of untold tales of spider-man and as such that'll be a longer show the script is already somewhere in the region of 11 pages long whereas the script for this one was only five so this is a much shorter episode but do you prefer that do you prefer that you you have a longer gap between episodes but get a longer episode at the end of it or do you prefer that i suddenly get attacked by a muse and wrestle to the floor that says to me, you really want to talk about two Edward Woodward shows, and then just release it as a shorter episode. I'd, I'd genuinely like to know what you think. 
Anyway, Jason says, greetings. That was an interesting episode. The creators of Captain America hated those 70s cat movies. It took the MCU era for Cap to finally get a decent film. Uh, Jason has nothing interesting to say about Knight Rider 2000 or Land of the Giants. Class, I do have something to say about. I find it odd that it can be a non-occupied London as the master murdered the US president, or president-elect as the show flip-flopped on that when he was the Prime Minister of the UK before the year that never was started. Something that they should have left in that reversal of time as it kind of makes having some vaguely the same present for the Hooniverse impossible. Then again, they had the moon become some egg holding a giant creature that had an exact double of itself after it was hatched by the 12th Doctor, so I kind of doubt the Doctor Who staff are concerned with details like that. And that's not bashing Doctor Who. I think it's a great franchise, just there are some weird plot bits can get a bit weird and hard to explain sometimes. Yes. Yeah, I, I think the best thing to do with Doctor Who is not pay too much attention to the wibbly-wobbly timey-wiminess of it all it's just kind of you know go along with it anyway that's all the emails on the grab bag episode i very much appreciate all you lovely people that took the time to sit at your keyboards and let me know what you think of it if you yes you have anything to say about this or any of the other episodes of palace i'm not um, I don't object to reading emails about older shows if you've happened to stumble upon them and if you have any answers to those questions that I just threw out I would love to hear from you uh, the email address is heykidscomics at virginmedia.com you can drop by the Facebook page if you want to I always try to be accommodating to people who ask questions on the Facebook page as well and um, that's about it for this time as I mentioned earlier the next episode, if I get all my ducks in a row, will be the first episode of my Untold Tales of Spider-Man retrospective, which will follow the same format as the Amazing Spider-Man retrospective that I did last year. So uh, I hope you're looking forward to that as much as I'm enjoying doing it. As usual, 2TrueFreaks.com is the production partner for this show. And on the 2TrueFreaks page, there is a little Amazon link and if you buy something for Amazon, if you go through that link for us, we get a kickback. And that pays for the show hosting for this and all the other fine podcasts on the Two True Freaks Network. Shows like Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, Hey Kids Comics, free plug for myself, Earth Destruction Directive, Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast, In Country, Pop Culture Affidavit, Anime Freaks. No Consoles for Old Men, Dave Does Podcasts, Third Degree Burn, Jay Guys and Jedi, Mindless Drivel, Babes, Bugs and Bots. I think I got that the wrong way around. I do apologise, Mr. Jackanetta. Is It Jaws, Cast Protection, a Stranger Things podcast, Weekly Heroics, Required Reading with Tom and Stella, Dinner for Geeks, Garage Sale Gloats, and many, 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 many more that I haven't got the time to read out at the moment. Uh, because I don't know if they're ongoing shows or if they've died or what. Oh, Back to the Bins. You've got to check out Back to the Bins because Paul Spataro will sort out if I don't mention Back to the Bins. Anyway, see you next time. Thank you for joining me. Take care. Goodbye. <laughs>